Good to see you today. Got it. Okay. Uh, well, today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, so go ahead and turn there. This is the beginning of the section um, talking about Stephen. Stephen is one of the seven that we learned about briefly last week. Uh, he's one of the men put forward, selected, and commissioned to do the work that had been neglected. Greek-speaking widows had been overlooked in the daily distribution, and Stephen is one of the seven that the, um, that the people put forward in the apostles' commission to fulfill that work. And from what we can learn from Luke's writing, as little as it is, Stephen was a remarkable man. And I pray that as we work through this section on Stephen, which although it's just a little bit over a chapter, we're going to spend several weeks there, uh, I pray that we'll be challenged and that we'll grow through it. And so let's look at the text together. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Acts 6, beginning with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us, Lord. We really do want to know you more. And so wherever we're at as we come this morning, that's our desire, Lord. We come to know you. And so help us. Help us to see even more of what you are like and who you are today as we look at your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, before we get into working through these verses, I want to ask you a question. I really want you to consider, uh, I want everyone here to answer this. You don't have to answer it out loud, just even in your own uh, minds to answer this question. Who is your earthly hero? Who is it that you uh, most look up to? Who do you most want to be like? Whose pattern of life, and especially speech, would you most want to reflect? Does everybody have someone in mind? You have to answer this part. You have to nod even. Does everybody have some, someone in mind? Good. You want to know who mine is? Who my earthly hero is? It is 
And you probably think I'm going to say Stephen here because that's the sermon. And that would, be a, that would be a really, really bad intro to a sermon if I just led up to Stephen. But it's not. My hero, the person I would love to talk and act like, is Fred Rogers. Now listen. You know him as Mr. Rogers. I know him as Fred. Okay? Um, and maybe you think I'm kidding. I am not kidding. With all of my heart, um, that is my hero. That is, in my heart, that's who I want to be like. When I see the way he communicated with people, even relating to difficult things, the way he loved people, the way that he addressed things that he opposed, there was always a measured and grace-filled response. At almost 51 years old, I have genuinely decided that his is the character I want to reflect for the rest of my life. And I genuinely, I pray that the Lord allows that. Now, what does Mr. Rogers have to do with Acts chapter 6? Well, honestly, I think a lot. As I've meditated on this text and looked at it over and over, I cannot escape the descriptions given of Stephen. Descriptions that we're going to talk about in the text today. Those descriptions paint a picture for us of his demeanor and his character, of what he was like. So let's look at it. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. From the very beginning, we're learning about Stephen's character. It started last week. We know from last week's text that Stephen was a man with a good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and that he was full of faith. And here Luke says that he was a man full of grace and power. Now those are incredible ways to describe a person. He's an example, a mature Christian leader who is full of faith and of wisdom, and his ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that he's not intimidated by the opposition that comes his way. But as we go through this, we should put into our minds, what does it mean that he's not intimidated? What does it look like for Stephen to not be intimidated by his opponents? Stephen not being intimidated cannot in any way undermine the fact that he is full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That he's a man full of grace and power. And what I mean by that, I really believe we need to, to learn this and embrace this. Grace is grace. And even when it is accompanied by power, it is grace. And being full of the Spirit and therefore bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, being full of the Spirit is being full of the Spirit. Even when it is accompanied by power. 
Hopefully that makes sense. We, we tend to let power define everything else. Especially if we desire power in our own circles, religious circles or political circles or whatever circles we live and walk and work in. We tend to let power define everything else. But Peter was full of grace. I mean, Stephen was full of grace and he was full of the Spirit. And those things work with him being full of power. The power that Stephen is described as having is power that comes from the presence of the Lord. From God's Spirit being in Stephen. And so the result of that we see in verse 8 is that Stephen, the guy who's been set apart to make sure that Greek-speaking widows are being taken care of, having their needs met, he's now doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, what were those wonders and signs? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe they were healings of those who were in need, maybe, but we don't know. But it doesn't mean he neglected his role among the needy. He's fulfilling that role he's commissioned to do, and the Lord is doing these great works through him. Whatever it looked like, balancing those things out, we find out quickly he starts ticking people off. Verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen's ministry provokes opposition from diaspora Jews living in Jerusalem. Remember, diaspora Jews are the ones who lived outside of Jerusalem and then moved back to Jerusalem to live there. You think about this. Stephen has just been appointed to this position of taking care of the widows. And in that role, he has opportunity to speak about Jesus. He's doing great signs among the people. He's performing miracles by the power of the Spirit. And now almost at once, he finds himself in the midst of conflict. And there's division. There's division between Greek-speaking believers and non-believers. In Jerusalem, one of the synagogues was sponsored by Greek-speaking freedmen, the former slaves who had been set free. Other Greek-speaking Jews who also worshipped in the local synagogues were Cyrenians, Jews who came from, the region, from a region in northern Africa. And then there were Alexandrians from Alexandria in Egypt. And they rise up and begin to dispute or debate with Stephen. Now, at this point, we ought to fight what debate means here. Or what it might look like in our own minds and in our own context. I think N.T. Wright is, is correct here. He says this concerning this text. 
people today find real debate about actual topics difficult and much prefer the parody of debate, which consists of giving a dog a bad name and then beating him for it and lashing out too at anyone who associates with the dog you happen to be beating at the time. There's far too much of that in the church, and the only answer is more listening, more actual thinking, and more careful and humble speaking. Now, that's what we must assume about Stephen, listening and careful and humble speaking. You may say, well, why would we assume that? Because we know from the text he was full of wisdom and grace and faith and power in the Spirit. So whatever debating looks like, it doesn't look like it conflicts with that. It goes on in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So as they debate with him, and he's responding, in his thoughtful and spirit-filled speaking, those who come against Stephen can't withstand his wisdom. We can imagine that he just keeps responding to their accusations with responses that are full of wisdom and grace. He's able to support what he's saying with the truth. And really, we see here that Stephen's experiencing the fulfillment of what Jesus said would be true of his disciples. Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, Jesus speaking, he says, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's what's happening here with Stephen. As he speaks by the power of God's Spirit working through him with wisdom and grace, even as they're throwing accusations and debating with him about things, they can't withstand his wisdom. So what do they do? Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. What do the opponents do? They do exactly what N.T. Wright said of many today. They conspired. They name call. They, they, can't, they cannot admit defeat. And, and, and truly, they really do believe that Stephen is a heretic. They believe he should be eliminated. They, they can't um, withstand his wisdom, but they, should, they want him taken out. Blasphemy brought about the most severe punishment in Israel, and that's, that's what they're accusing Stephen of. This is blasphemy. So they start stirring other people up, and it's very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus. They start getting other people to make accusations against Stephen. 
We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, how much of that was true? It depends on your interpretation of the law and of who Jesus is. They denied that Jesus had come from God. They denied that he was the Messiah. And so for anyone to speak about Jesus as the, fulfill, as the fulfillment of God's promises and ultimately as the promised Messiah, that was blasphemy against the law described as Moses and against the temple, the place where God met with men. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They, they stir up the people and the authorities. Not with the truth. They're not telling the truth. They don't, they don't understand the truth. They've missed the truth. They're telling their version of the truth, but it isn't actual truth. And they come upon him. In other words, they confront Stephen. They seize him. They arrest him, likely with force, and they bring him before the council. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. Just as they had done before with Peter and John and the other apostles, and before them, Jesus, they bring Stephen before the council. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Again, look at the similarities here with Jesus. They set up false witnesses against Stephen, just like they set up false witnesses against Jesus. And they had to. They, they cannot withstand his wisdom. They can't withstand the spirit with which he's speaking. And so they need people to lie. They need people to say things that are going to get him convicted. Say things about him that may not be true, but will set off alarms in the Sanhedrin and cause them to act against Stephen. And they say here that Stephen never stops saying things against the temple. He never stops speaking against the holy place. And he never stops speaking against the law of Moses. Now, those things weren't true. They're false witnesses, it says here. But they were things that would infuriate the Sanhedrin things that were important to the Sanhedrin and would infuriate them against Stephen. And so you have multiple witnesses saying these things that are going to turn the Sanhedrin against Stephen. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I skipped a verse. For we have heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Again, this is part of the false witness. And, and Luke's giving here a direct quote from the false witnesses. 
We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, where did they get that from? We don't know. We don't actually have anything that Stephen said up until this point. We, we get to hear his speech before the, the Sanhedrin, the council, after this in, in chapter 7, but we don't, we don't get to hear anything that he said or we don't get to read anything that he said before this. Because the goal of these people is not actually to give an account of Stephen's words. Their goal is to get rid of Stephen. And so they're stirring up others against him and now stirring up the, the religious leaders, the council against him. But look at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. I hope that you are compelled and moved by that verse. They were gazing at Stephen. This is talking about those who are conspiring against him. Those that are there bearing false witness. Those that are there lying because they want him dead. They're gazing at him because his face was like the face of an angel. This is Luke emphasizing the presence of God in Stephen. They all stared at him. They all gazed at him. He hasn't even said a word, and they're just gazing at him. Because his face was like the face of an angel. That's amazing. Amazing. What does it mean? What does it mean that his face is like the face of an angel? Well, I think first we can eliminate anger. We can eliminate sarcastic disregard. And I don't think it means that he's glowing or something like that. No, that would have caused them to second guess what they were saying about Stephen if he's literally there glowing. It has to do with his countenance, that the grace and peace that was evident on his face was like the face of an angel. I titled the sermon, The Power of Wisdom and Grace, and I, I titled it that on purpose for this very reason. The primary hope of the power of wisdom and grace, what we know from the text that Stephen is and has, the primary hope of the power of wisdom and grace is not what it will do through us. It's what it will do in us. It's what it will do in our own hearts. We see this here. Stephen is a real person. He's a real human being. 
but he's being changed by the power of wisdom and grace. The Holy Spirit is changing this man. Whatever he was like before, whatever he was like before he had a relationship with Jesus, whatever he was like before he surrendered to the truth that Jesus really is the king and really is the savior of the world, whatever it was before doesn't matter. The Spirit is changing him. And he is full of grace and he is full of wisdom and he's changed in such a way that his countenance is significantly changed so that these people in this courtroom are gazing at him even though they hate him because his face is like the face of an angel. He's exuding grace. He's speaking with wisdom. He's demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and his countenance is affected. People just gazing at him because his face is like the face of an angel. So let's do this. Let's commit to something. Let's remember this verse as we work our way through Stephen's words over the next weeks. Let's commit to that. And if the image creeps into our heads of an angry type of debating or an angry type of preaching, remember this verse. He looked like an angel and he was filled with the Spirit. I long to be that. To be filled with wisdom and grace. Yes, I said earlier, I want to be like Fred Rogers. I want to have the demeanor of one who displays the fruit of the Spirit, who isn't out to prove a point, but to prove God's love for everyone. We're going to see more of this in Stephen as we move through chapter 7. And what we can know as we do, and why, why I'm encouraging us to commit, to, to cling to this text today, is because the things that he says moving forward don't contradict what is true about his countenance and his personality and his love for the Lord here. None of that changes as we move forward. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup together, and we remember the grace of our Lord Jesus. Grace that gave to us. Grace that came to us. Grace that's poured out lavishly on all who come to God in faith. Trusting in Jesus. You know, Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 1. He has lavished us with grace. Incredible. Jesus said, this is my body. Broken for you. So as often as you take the bread, 
do it in remembrance of me. He said, this, this cup is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as often as you take it, do it remembering, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of my grace that I've lavished on you. My grace in inviting you to come freely and partake not just of bread and cup, but of me. Let's remember his words. Let's remember his life. Let's remember his love as we get the bread and the cup, as we go back to our seats, as we sing together, as we prepare to take it together. Let's remember Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for grace. Grace that you have lavished upon us. And by definition, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We never did. And we never will. And yet you love us so deeply and so perfectly. And you have proven that. You've, you've demonstrated, you've proven your love for us and that while we were still sinners, we were just like the people in this text in the Sanhedrin before the council who, who made up stories and lies against you, Lord. Even while we were like that, Christ died for us. What a blessing that we can gather and we can take a, a cracker and a cup of juice and, and purposefully set our minds and our hearts together as a corporate body remembering what you did for us. And so, Lord, help us, just as Paul writes as we do this, that it would truly be a proclamation of your death until you come, that we truly would do this believing Jesus, you died, you were raised, you are alive, and you're coming back. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.